You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word for his people. And that means when we are reading the Bible, we are hearing God speak. The passage today comes from 1 John chapter 1 from verses 1 to 4. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Please follow along with your own Bibles and the passage will also be on the screen. 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the internal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Gracious God, we ask that you might open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your instruction. All for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let let me ask you a question, and I want you to answer it honestly. Don't, Don't shout it out, but answer it in the quietness of your own heart. And here's the question. If you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? If you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? Seriously, take a moment in silence and reflect on that. Answer it in your heart. If you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? You know, some years ago, a friend of mine caught up with a man who only had a few weeks left to live. And in that moment, you don't really talk about the weather, you know, you don't really talk about who's winning the footy at that time, you talk about serious things that count. And he asked him that very question. The man wasn't a Christian, and he thought about it for some time, and eventually, this is what he said to my friend, I don't know, but I'll risk it. How did you just answer that question? You know, I suspect that for many of us, our answer is this. If I die tonight, am I going to heaven? I hope so. I hope so. But we're not confident, are we? We're not actually sure or certain that we have eternal life. But I want you to realize that not just today, but over this entire series, this entire book of 1 John, that you don't just have to hope. No, no, you can actually know that you have eternal life. In fact, let me tell you, if I were to die tonight, I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to heaven. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sounds bad, doesn't it, right? Presumptuous, arrogant. Gosh, Adam, how does your head even fit into this great hall? But, but I want you to see that we can be confident and sure of our eternity, and it actually has nothing to do with us. It has absolutely nothing to do with the life that we've lived or the good deeds that we've performed. 
And yet still, we can have a rock-solid, ironclad, bulletproof, devil-defying confidence that we have eternal life. In fact, the Apostle John has written this letter for that very purpose. Chapter 5, verse 13, this is what he writes. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, John is writing this letter so that you can be sure and certain that if you die tonight, you know exactly where you're going. And in this letter, he's going to do that by setting before us the marks of a true Christian. The marks of a true Christian. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see exactly what they are. A true Christian lives in light and not darkness. Love and not hate. Truth and not lies. Christ and not the world. But, before he turns the spotlight onto us, before he holds a mirror up to our own souls, no, John opens his letter with a prologue. The prologue that Yuli just read before. And in this prologue, he brings us to ground zero. The foundation of our assurance, the basis of our confidence. And here it is. Not me, but he. Not myself, but my Saviour. In verses 1 and 2, this is what he's saying. If you want to know that you have eternal life, don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. Keep your Bibles open. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice just how real and tangible these first two verses are. Notice, right? What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've observed, and here it is, touched with our hands. And again, down in verse 3, what we've seen and heard. Can you see what John's doing? He's appealing to our human senses of sight, of, of sound and touch. He's saying that he and all the apostles have had a personal and even physical encounter with Jesus. So in verse 2, we've seen it and we testify and declare it to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. Watch it. Do you notice the progression? John and the apostles, what did they do? They saw Jesus. They, they witnessed Jesus. They testified to Jesus. And now what do they do? They declare Jesus to the world. They declare the Jesus whom they saw. Did you see what he's saying? He's saying, we haven't made this up. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't hearsay or, or circumstantial evidence. No, this is the direct contemporaneous testimony of a first-hand witness to the fact we can trust his words. But I want you to notice also how he describes Jesus, and it's a bit strange. In verse 1, he says that Jesus is the word of life. Verse 2, he is that life. He is eternal life. Why? Why do you think John's describing Jesus in this way? Why be so cryptic, right? Why not just say Jesus was revealed? Or why not just say we declare to you Jesus who was with the Father? It'd just be so much more straightforward, wouldn't it? But remember, why is John writing this letter? He wants us to know that we have eternal life. And so when he describes Jesus in this way, as eternal life, as the life, as the word of life, he's showing us that eternal life isn't found in us. It's not found in our works or our deeds or our goodness. No, eternal life is found not in me, but He. 
If you want to know that you have eternal life, brothers and sisters, don't look within. Look at Him. Why? Why can I be so confident that if I die tonight, I know exactly where I'm going? If you know me, you'll know it's certainly not because of anything that I've done. It's not because I'm good. It's all because Jesus is God. You see, friends, if my eternal life somehow depends on me and what I've done, I don't stand a chance. Oh, I'll know where I'm going. And it's not to heaven. But if my eternal life depends on Jesus and who He is, then can I tell you, I can be certain and sure that I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be with Him. How can I know that I've got eternal life? Because the word of life, verse 1, the message of the gospel, the truth about Jesus. And for all of us who trust that truth, I want you to know that our eternal life, your eternal life, is as certain, as sure, as tangible, as real as Jesus himself is true and real. But you know, in this time, in the first century, when John wrote this letter, not everyone believed that Jesus was true and real. In fact, some people were claiming that, no, they, they were saying, I know God, I've got a relationship with God, but they refused to accept that Jesus was a real human. This group of people, they were called Gnostics, right? That name Gnostic is based on the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And let me break down for you what they believed. For them, knowledge was everything. But not just any knowledge, no, they, they had this dualistic view of the world. That they divided the world between the spiritual knowledge up there and the material stuff down here. And everything up there is good and everything down here is bad. And the goal of life is what? To be set free from the material world and to rise to that special, supernatural, spiritual knowledge. Now, when you pause for a moment, right, you might not know anyone who identifies Gnostic on the census form, but it almost sounds a little bit Buddhist, doesn't it? to be set free from the physical, to attain to and reach enlightenment. Well, these Gnostics claim to have reached that enlightenment, to have that secret knowledge that is otherworldly, that somehow detached from this dirty, corrupted material world. It seems all a bit distant, but I want you to imagine for a moment being a Christian in the first century. You just finish at church, you come out, and a group of your friends come to you, and they're claiming that God personally spoke to them in a mystical, miraculous way. Bit awkward, but you haven't heard anything. All you have is the truth about Jesus, that he died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That, that's all you have. But your friends come up and say, hey, don't, 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 don't worry about all that Bible stuff. Now, last night God spoke to me, I heard his voice. Hey, didn't he speak to you? Didn't he reveal to you that special word of knowledge? Oh, mate, if only you knew. How would it make you feel? How would it make you feel to see your friends reject the truth about Jesus and instead bank everything on some mystical word that you don't have? I'll tell you how I feel. I would begin to waver. I would begin to worry. I might even begin to wonder, hey, am I missing something here? Is God's word not enough? Is there more to it than what I already know about Jesus? Do I really have eternal life? 
So it's no wonder that John now emphasizes the reality, the tangibility, the, the sight, the sound, and the touch of Jesus. It's as if he comes alongside us now, right, and says, hey, 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 no, don't, don't worry. You haven't missed a thing. You don't need some special insight or some mystical word. No, you have everything you need. You have the truth about Jesus. It's historical. It's tangible. It's rock solid. And you can even go right now and verify it for yourself. You see, if you keep trusting this dependable truth, my dear friend, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. But the Gnostics have an even bigger problem than this obsession with special knowledge. You see, track with me the logic, right? If they think that everything spiritual up there is good, and everything material down here is bad, then how in the world can God become man? Does that make sense? That they cannot accept that Jesus is truly human, that God could somehow come as a human being. If before their obsession with special knowledge sounded almost Buddhist, this now almost sounds a bit Islamic, doesn't it? For God to take on human flesh would be to corrupt the incorruptible. The Gnostics refuse to believe that Jesus is truly human. Now you might sit there and think, oh look Adam, when I talk to my non-Christian mates, none of them really believe that anymore. Most of my friends, they're fine with Jesus' humanity. No, 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 it's his deity they have a problem with. They don't refuse to believe that Jesus was a human. They refuse to believe that Jesus was God. That's what you might think. Late last year, the National Church Life Survey, the NCLS, found that only 49% of Australians believe that Jesus is a real person. Almost one in four Australians see Jesus as a mythical or fictional character. 29% of Aussies stick the I don't know box. See, there's an increasing number of Australians who, just like the Gnostics, reject or wonder or doubt or don't believe that Jesus is truly human. And if that's true, if it's true that Jesus isn't really a man, then can I tell you, fellow Christian, we're in deep trouble. Because if you, if you, Take away Jesus' humanity, right? You are pulling out one of the bottom foundational blocks in the Jenga tower, right? It'll all come crashing down. Let let me show you three examples from 1 John about why. First example, chapter 1, verse 3. What we've seen and heard, that's the humanity of Jesus, truth about Jesus. What we've seen and heard, we also declare to you. Why? So that you may also have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If Jesus isn't truly human, then you and I can never have fellowship with God. Because how can a human like us know a God like Him? Number two, chapter two, verse one, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, here it is, He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If Jesus isn't truly human, then you and I have no forgiveness and no salvation. Because how can Jesus really die for us unless He's actually one of us? Third example, chapter 4, verse 10. Love, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us. How? By sending His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
If Jesus isn't truly human, then you and I cannot receive the greatest expression of God's love. Because His love is displayed in the sending of His Son. Did you see, friends, why it matters so much that Jesus is truly human? Because if He isn't truly human, then we have no real reason to believe in Him. And if we have no real reason to believe in Him, then we have no basis, no assurance, no confidence of eternal life. Here's the good news. He is. He is. Jesus is truly human. And because He's truly human, our eternal life is as certain and sure as Jesus is true and real. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us today, or maybe you've been with us for a few weeks, now you might see us each Sunday opening the Bible, reading from it, hearing from it, and you might actually think subconsciously, or maybe consciously, it's not actually real, is it? It's a bit more like spiritual therapy. It's not actually historical fact, surely. I've said it before here, but but I'll say it again. The Bible isn't like Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter. Like, it's not that, right? The Bible is an historical account of real events and real people in real time and real space. Don't take my word for it. You can check it. The Oxford Classical Dictionary, Volume 10 of the Cambridge Ancient History. Maybe check Volume 3 of the Cambridge Ancient History of Judaism. All of them reputable, secular, historical, academic sources unequivocally affirm that Jesus truly lived. Uh, John Dixon, uh, an ancient historian at the University of Sydney, this is what he writes. When you apply the normal rules of history to Jesus of Nazareth, this figure is plainly a historical one, not a mythical one. The early and diverse sources we have put we have put his existence and much more, here it is, beyond reasonable doubt. Beyond reasonable doubt. Do you know what that means? If you're not a Christian, that means that you can know Jesus beyond reasonable doubt. It means that if you're a Christian, you can have fellowship with God beyond reasonable doubt. Your sins can be forgiven beyond reasonable doubt. You can be truly loved by God beyond reasonable doubt. And most of all, you can know that you have eternal life beyond reasonable doubt. Not because of anything in you. Not because of anything in me. But because of everything about Him. Not me, but He. Not myself, but my Saviour. Friends, can you see, I wonder if you can say with me, if I die tonight, I know exactly where I'm going because of the truth about Jesus. You know, over the last few years, tragically, I've seen a number of my friends walk away from the Lord. For whatever reason, they've decided to stop gathering as a church. In one sense, they've decided to no longer belong to God's family. Here's what's strange though, and maybe you can help me understand this, some of them still want to identify as a Christian. They still want to say, no, I have fellowship with God, I kind of know God, but I've had enough of this. They still claim to know God in some way, but they've walked away from Him and His people. And can I be honest, when I see that, it shakes me. In a moment of weakness, I wonder, are they right? Am I wrong? 
I love you all dearly, but I wonder, should I be here with all of you? Or should I be out there with all of them and walk away? Who's got it right? Will the real Christian please stand up? Now, that's similar to the situation of John's original audience. If you go to chapter 2, verse 19, you'll see that John writes about the Gnostics. This is what he says. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. Can you see? Here's the crazy thing. The Gnostics once belonged to the people of God. They were once within that fellowship, but they walked away. They left God and they left us. And now... They're trying to pull some of us away. To do what they've done, to join them, to leave God and His people. They're saying, hey guys, don't go to church, don't gather with those guys. This is where real fellowship is. Not with Jesus, but without Him. Have you ever seen that happen before? But in verse 3, John wants us to see that true belonging is based on believing the truth. True belonging is based on believing the truth. Why, right? Why is John declaring the truth about Jesus? Verse 3. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you see why he's declaring the truth about Jesus? Why is he saying that Jesus is truly human and eternal life is found in Him? What's the point? It's all for fellowship. It's all for fellowship. He wants you and me, Christians who believe in the name of the Son of God, He wants us to persevere, to remain, to stay in Christian fellowship. He wants us to stop it. He wants to stop us from ever walking away from God and His people. He wants us to see that true fellowship is grounded in the truth about Jesus. The Gnostics, no, they, they don't have the truth about Jesus. So they don't have true fellowship with God. Don't go there. Don't join them. Don't leave God. Please, don't leave us. Do you notice the chain of logic in verse 3? John wants the believers to have fellowship with us, that is, with him and all the apostles. But their fellowship, our fellowship, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You, you can't be in fellowship with us unless you're in fellowship with God through Jesus. The horizontal relationships depend on the vertical relationship. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us here at church each week, can I say, I am so glad that you're here. We really love having you and we couldn't imagine our church life without you. But I hope you realise that our friendship with you doesn't guarantee you a relationship with God. If you want to enjoy eternal life in Jesus, don't start with us. We're not your gateway to God. No, Jesus is. Start with Him. Your fellowship with us, as great as it is, right, is an expression of your primary fellowship with God. And your fellowship with God must be based on the truth about Jesus. Do you get it? So, if you want to belong to this, this is great, yeah? If you want to belong to this, you need to first belong to God. But if you want to belong to God, you need to first believe in Jesus. That's the logic of the gospel. We believe and then we belong. We believe and then we belong. 
But isn't it beautiful? The goal of the gospel is fellowship with God. You know, you think Christians, we talk about salvation so much, right? And you think it's all about salvation, and it is. But salvation is merely the gateway into an eternal life of love and light with Him. The greater goal. Believe it or not, it gets even better. Because the goal of the gospel is fellowship with God and each other. I hope that wasn't a disappointment. You see, God sent Jesus as one of us so that, we might, so that he might have fellowship with us. Physical, visible, and tangible fellowship. It's as real as you could get. But that means then that our fellowship with, another, with one another must be physical, visible, and tangible as well. When someone says the word fellowship, I wonder what comes to your mind? You might think it means hanging out together. You might think it's that great monthly social week of the Bible study calendar that we all hang out for. Maybe it means our spiritual connection, but it doesn't really affect our everyday lives. You know, we're in fellowship. See you next week. But the vision of fellowship in 1 John is so much thicker. It's so much more robust. It is the deep communion that we have with one another that overflows from the fountainhead that is our union with Christ. It is the outpouring of the love of the Father for the Son that now spills over into our love for one another. It's amazing. And that divine love and fellowship, can I tell you, is way more than just sentimental. The point of the incarnation means that it's physical, visible, tangible, just like the Lord Jesus. We've got a lot of new people at church. It's really exciting. And you might be someone who's new to church or attending our church for a few months, but you're still keeping your distance. You dwell at the fringes, you hold people at arm's length. If that's you, can I invite you? Or can God invite you? Can John invite you? Come closer. Go deeper. Jesus saved you for us and he saved us for you. Because the goal of the gospel is fellowship with God and each other. And if you want to be sure that you have eternal life, here's two diagnostic questions. Number one, do you believe the truth about Jesus? Number two, do you belong to the fellowship of believers? Do you believe the truth about Jesus and do you belong to the fellowship of believers? But I want you to notice, finally, I just love actually how this prologue ends. It's such a bright and wonderful book with beaming with light and love. But look at how it ends in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy, so that our joy may be complete. Wow! Wow! If you want to know what should mark Christian fellowship, there it is. Joy unhindered. I don't have time to go into it and show you the ins and outs of it. You can come and find me later if you want to know, but do you realize that whether it's in his Gospels or his letters, whether in the Gospel of John or 1, 2, 3 John, every time that John mentions the words joy and complete together, he's talking about fellowship. I can't, take them, I can't take you through all of them right now, but if you want, I can prove it to you, right? In every instance, the completion of his joy is found in fellowship with God and his people. The flip side, of course, is that whenever someone walks away from the Lord, whenever someone rejects the truth about Jesus, 
Whenever someone forsakes the fellowship of believers, John's joy, our joy, our collective joy is diminished. We're heartbroken. And looking around, I know, if you've had friends walk away from the Lord, you'll know exactly how that feels, right? And that's actually what the believers here in John are at risk of. Being led away from God. Being led away from His people. And John says in this letter, don't go with them. You'll diminish our joy. Stay with us. Persevere with us. Go deeper with us. Complete our joy. In that wonderful letter, 3 John, which all of you know so well, 3 John 4, he writes, I have no greater joy than this. Actually, I wonder, how would you finish that? If you were to write, I have no greater joy than this, what would you say? John says, to hear that my children are walking in truth. Isn't that beautiful? His greatest joy is that we are staying and remaining and abiding in Jesus. What is it that completes our joy? When people believe the truth about Jesus, when people belong to the fellowship of believers. What is it that completes my joy? When you, all of us, live in the light and love of Christ. Now you might wonder, Adam, what does it actually look like? What does it feel like? Well, let me tell you the one time where I've really felt it. I have this person's permission to share this. In 2009, one of my closest friends who goes to this church walked away from the Lord. And she did the very thing that the believers in 1 John were at risk of. And I can tell you that when she left, I was shattered. She doesn't know this, but she, um, or remember this, but she used to read the Bible to her little brother every night. And I don't mean just like Mark's gospel, I mean like two kings, right? Like she would, like, she would read the Bible, right? And she, she walked away from the Lord. I think I prayed for most nights for about two to three years. But then you reach a certain point where you just stop praying. Maybe the noble thing, as I said, I entrusted her to the Lord, but I don't know, right? Like... But it crushed my joy. One day, I think it's about seven years later, I'm driving to church. I'm on Doncaster Road. I get to Greythorn Road. And my phone buzzes. It's a text from my friend Mikey, who's a pastor in Brisbane. Now, never check your phone at the lights. It's always illegal and always bad. Confession, statute of limitations. I check my phone. Hey, Adam. Your friend came to church today. There's a reason why they say don't check your phone in the car. Because I almost crashed. For the first time in seven or so years, my joy, oh, it just, it sparked. Just a little. And I thought to myself, maybe, just maybe, God was doing a work in her heart to bring her home. And for those of you who know her, you'll know he did. He did. 2019. 2019, 10 long years, he brought her home. Back into fellowship with him. Back into fellowship with his people. And guess what? I got to baptize her. How good is that? And can I tell you on that day, I just felt like, yes, right? 
I'm writing these things to you so that your joy, so that our joy may be complete. Maybe you're someone like my friend. You once walked with the Lord, but at some point you chose to walk away from it all. And it's been so long since you've been at a church, but hey, here you are. Here you are. And if that's you, can I, can I invite you to come home? to come back to the Lord, to come back into His family, to rediscover the joy of fellowship with God and His people. God will never turn you away. And neither will we. You can know that you have eternal life. But maybe you're someone who's actually thinking about walking away from the Lord. You feel like the door's open and you're looking at it and going, maybe I'm just going to walk through it. You're thinking about throwing in the towel, throwing it all away. And John says, John urges you, please don't. Please don't think that there's more joy out there. No, there is far more joy, far greater joy. There is complete joy in fellowship with God and His people than anywhere else. So, if you were to die tonight, are you going to heaven? Don't just hope you will. Know you will. Because if you believe the truth, not about yourself, right? If you believe the truth about Jesus, that He is the Son of God, no ifs, no buts, you have eternal life. And because of that great truth, you belong to this, this unbreakable fellowship with God and all these people. And you need not live in fear, in insecurity, in uncertainty, wondering and worrying that you might not be saved. No, I promise you that your life can be marked by a joy both confident and complete. How can I know that I have eternal life? Not me, but He. Not myself, but my Saviour. Why don't I pray? We are tired, we are weak, and we are worn. And we wonder how we can keep on going. And our faith is shaken, our assurance is undermined, our confidence is being rattled and yet we look not to ourselves, we look to the truth about Jesus, that He is the Son of God who lived the life that we could never have lived and died the death that we should have died and in His resurrection He guarantees for us that we have life eternal forever in the light and love of God. We ask, God, that you might steal our confidence, deepen our assurance, bed down our deep, deep confidence that we have eternal life in the Lord Jesus. Not because of us, but all because of Him. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.